The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sunam from The Homes Report, a... Big shout, as always, to our sponsor, March Communications, and to our production partner, Marketeers. We're joined on today's podcast by Jason Carrion, um, who is the global finance and economics editor from Quartz. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, and we're here to talk a little bit about your trip to Cannes next week. It is, of course... The Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity next week, and you will be playing, so I'm told, a uh, a fairly big role helming Quartz's uh, daily email briefings from Cannes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we will be sending out a daily uh, morning email, a Cannes daily brief that follows the format of our uh, Quartz daily brief, which is a, a free email that goes out every morning with. Um, the biggest uh, news to watch out for in the global economy, what happened yesterday, surprising discoveries, matter of debate, uh, basically a uh, link fest to uh, um, keep you up to date. And we um, do these you know, specific uh, emails for uh, big events like CAN, like Davos, and uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll be the one compiling the uh, CAN email this year with a colleague of mine, Jenny Avens, who's our lifestyle uh, editor based in LA. Mm, okay, excellent. Well, sounds like um, a lot of hard work, but tell me why your readers at Quartz um, are interested in Cannes and, and maybe some of the themes and trends that, that they might be looking out for. Sure. Well, Quartz, we describe ourselves as a guide to the global economy for business people who are excited by change. <laughs> um, it's kind of a, a mouthful there, but I do think that uh, a lot of those business people, a lot of a lot of uh, curious worldly people, will be in Cannes, and there is. I don't need to tell uh, your listeners that there is a lot of disruption, a lot of change happening in the media, advertising, uh, technology industries, and Cannes is is where you can see you know the physical manifestation of those. You see Facebook and Google uh, expanding their presence while. Perhaps a bit of anxiety uh, in the in the more traditional kind of media um, world, and then in the middle of it all, the creatives and the agencies trying to make sense of of, of how they make an impact, how they're effective with their messaging. You know, in this in this new world where so much of the growth in advertising is, you know, on these platforms, namely Facebook and Google. Um, I think. It makes perfect sense for courts to be there. This is a this is a, a major economic finance business story. It's it's got a tech angle. Um, it's creative. Uh, it's it's all happening. It's in our it's it's in our our wheelhouse, as the mm. Americans would say. Yeah, it's a really interesting observation because I can actually remember um, when Facebook and Google were not at Cannes. Um, and you know, the last not that long ago, not that long ago, of course. You know, say say eight or nine years ago, um, but the last five years has has really seen can morph into a, a tech conference as much as anything. It's not not dissimilar to how the tech titans are also um, quite present in Davos as well. Um, oh, definitely, yeah. It, it, so it's it's a trend at both of them. But I, it was interesting what you said about how the uh, the advertising world is dealing with the threat from Facebook and Google. I mean, do you feel that these industries are getting to grips with that threat? I mean, it takes time, right? Dis disruption, by definition, is not a is not a comfortable thing if you're the one being disrupted. I think, I mean, you certainly see a lot more creativity around. Um, around the ads to, you know, for example, get your message across uh, in pre-roll YouTube clips before you can click the, the skip um, button. Mm. I think that there's a lot of sort of um, 
at the margin changes that are happening there that reflect the nature of the platforms where people are. And I mean, to sort of pivot slightly to something I, you know, I, I know intimately in, our, in, in the world of journalism, you know, a very small um, share of our traffic comes in via the homepage. People find our stories through Twitter, through Facebook, through LinkedIn, through platforms, through social. Mm. And um, I think that, you know, brand messaging and advertising and that and that kind of thing um, works the same way. And, you know, a lot of Quartz's revenue comes from native advertising and, and sort of new ways of reaching people beyond the traditional banner ad, which we don't do. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, it's a, um, in some ways it's kind of a, a slow moving evolution, but then there's, there's other areas of the industry that I think are, are, are being completely transformed in a, in a very rapid way. And some people are keeping up with that and some, some people aren't, I'm sure I'll, I'll meet both of them next week. Mm. It's interesting, and we've actually seen, I mean, I don't know if this is a, a fight back or, or a backlash, but the, uh, the, the, the advertising groups, the holding groups, the likes of Publicis and WPP have been, have been very vocal, and some of the big clients as well have been very vocal about the way um, that digital advertising is measured, uh, the kind of metrics that, that Facebook provides for, for video ads and, and YouTube as well. I mean, how big of an issue is that, do you think? I think it's an, it's an, it's an enormous issue. Uh, this is, and it's particularly interesting to me. So, so I'm the, uh, you know, finance economics editor here. I, I write a lot about corporate finance. I, I, you know, have, have in the past written a lot about accounting and these sorts of things. So I'm very curious to talk to CMOs, to talk to agency people about the types of metrics that they're getting about, how they measure the effectiveness of what they're doing. I think that's absolutely crucial. And I know there's huge debates happening in the industry about, you know, moving away from page views or unique users to think about what it really means, you know, what, what, a, what a video view means. There's been obviously a lot of controversy around measuring, you know, full views versus whether it just starts running versus how many seconds, you know, count mm-hmm. as as a view. And then there's things like, you know, scroll depth on articles and, and time on page. I think there's a, there's obviously a lot of ways to measure digital engagement with journalism, with advertising, with, you know, all the things that are in between those, 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 those two um, pieces of content. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of standards. There seems to be a lot of different schools of thought. And so it's a fascinating time to be, you know, dipping into this industry in terms of, you know, from my, from my media perspective. Mm. Um, and I'm very curious to, to, to hear what's the state of the art and, 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 and how people are, are pushing back on, on the platforms and how advertisers are justifying what they do to their clients. There's, there, there's, there's a lot up in the air. Mm. It's interesting because w, WPP CEO, uh, so Martin Sorrell often, often refers to Google and Facebook as frenemies uh, mm-hmm. You know his agencies; they, they they partner with them, but they compete with them. Do you feel like the relationship is more more friendly, or or are they more enemies at this point? I I think it's a, I think it's exactly that. I think it's finely balanced. They're frenemies. They they you you can't ignore them, but if you're not careful, it seems to me that 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 you'll be swallowed by them. And there's and there's we're definitely at a point. I think. I mean, you just look at the how much of the new spend goes on Google and Facebook. It's the, it's the, it's the vast majority. So they're clearly dominant and, and, and here to stay. But, but, um, I think there is, you know, from people like, uh, WPP and, and, and the likes of the big agencies, there's definitely some, some pushback on that. And so, um, you know, where, it, where it ends up, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but we're at a, we're at a fascinating kind of pivot point, inflection point, I don't know what you want to call it. Mm. Um, between, you know, they have to cooperate to a certain degree, but they can also compete. Um, and there are other platforms, there's Snapchat, some other things kind of on the margins that might be interesting there. So it's all, again, it's all kind of up in the air. And that's what makes it so in- interesting now, because there's no steady state, really. Yeah, it's in, I feel like for the first time, the the big digital platforms coming to Cannes um, are a little bit on the back foot. And I hesitate to say that given 
how much money they're making uh, and how well their businesses are doing. Um, but you, obviously you mentioned the issues around uh, advertising metrics. There's also issues about brand safety. You know, we're seeing a lot of concerns about where brand advertising is going. Is it going to run next to a, an ISIS video? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, concerns about about fake news. I mean, do do you feel like these are testing times for some of these digital platforms? Oh, definitely. And I think again that that interesting dichotomy between how dominant they are financially, just on the on the pure numbers. And I think you're exactly right in saying that they are uh, they need to be a bit more humble this year. I think in terms of the of their of their branding, because things like fake news, like some of the snafus around around measuring you know views and videos and 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 some of the mistakes we've seen there i think that you know like the 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 sort of dominant uh tech paradigm now that you that you grow incredibly fast you sort of uh do things first and apologize later and mistakes are are made all that kind of thing we're we're at that stage where their you know revenue dominance perhaps is is not enough and there's definitely sort of more qualitative issues that they're dealing with now you know particularly around facebook is you know rolling out this kind of automated ai checking of 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 sources and 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 trying to you know flag um fake news but also you know more pernicious uh activities on their platforms and just the idea that these big platforms can remain neutral that there isn't an editorial imperative there i think is 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 being sternly challenged and and that and that obviously also bleeds into the advertising marketing world mm. um you mentioned the the use of ai and i wondered if you had an opinion on on how much of a threat artificial intelligence poses to the advertising industry which is you know, still largely built around um, the ability to bill people out, um, often by the hour. Sure, sure. I mean, there is no industry that is that is untouched by automation and and AI now. I mean, in the in the um, in the industries that I that I that I know better, perhaps I was just with a group of uh, venture capitalists yesterday, and we were talked probably half the time about AI and 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 how much of their work can be automated which in the positive light frees them up to do more you know value adding um higher cognitive sort of tasks and in the less negative in the, in the less positive light it it basically takes their job from them i don't think that advertising marketing branding is immune from that and i mean things like programmatic are you know you don't need to touch it too much and um you know, we've seen what what happens when we leave that just to the machines that that things can go wrong. You can, you can have ad placements next to content that the advertiser would not want. And I think that any industry that that believes that it's immune from AI at a pretty high level um, is is kind of kidding itself. And so I'm very keen to uh, discuss with people about whether they see it as a as a opportunity or as a threat or some combination of the of the of the two mm. it's interesting because I, I suspect and the thing i hear quite often from people whether it's in the advertising or, or, or marketing or public relations industry is that you know machines can't do what they do machines can't be creative they can't provide high level counsel is that just a form of denial i mean Maybe <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not quite sure either. I have to admit, but all indications that I've seen and, and talking to people and 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 uh, you know both from the from the sort of AI side and and from the industries being disrupted, um, I think that the march of automation and machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's very rapidly moving up the value chain, the, the higher sort of skills level that um, I think it's unwise to underestimate it. Mm. Good point. So this will be your first can Lions, right? It will, yes. Okay, which is why you sound relatively unjaded. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always have an open mind, you know. 
a great attitude for a journalist. Um, what beyond the, the the things you've mentioned now? Any are there any um, other themes you're looking at, or any people or companies that you think are worth watching next week? Sure. Well, I mean, we've been talking about the obvious ones are the are the big tech companies. They're 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 the ones who are. Um, you know, I don't know for want of a better word, you know, rampant. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's lots of uh, chatter before the festival about, um, you know, Google and Facebook are going to be there in force, but it seems like a lot of the traditional can attendees, the, the agencies, the creatives seem to be perhaps cutting back a little bit more, a bit more modest about their spending and their, mm. I don't know, let's say behavior at the, uh, at the festival. So um, I think, you know, those are two narrative strings that I'll that I'll definitely be um, pulling on. Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's always interesting at these at these events um, to talk to. Uh, you know, there'll there'll be lots of celebrities there. I mean, you know, more in my world, Christine Lagarde is going to be there. I'm not very curious what her thoughts about um, creativity and and those and those kind of sideways views of 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 the industry and 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 people who are you know, in it, but not, but not in it, uh, um, who are creative, but not in the creative industry, let's say, I think there's, there's always, um, it's, there's always mileage in in speaking to those people about why they're there and, 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 and what they're thinking. But, you know, there's no, uh, I don't, I don't have any secret plan going in. I'm Mm -hmm. probably going to meet with a lot of Facebook people, a lot of, a lot of Google people and, you Mm -hmm. know, WPP and Ogilvy and, and Edelman and all the, all the, all the rest of them. Mm. So, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, whether whether we'll see perhaps better behavior or maybe less spending. I mean, there has been some talk of of agencies reining in their spending. I mean, do you, do you see that as a response just to the the global economic climate? It seems like that's the case. Yes, mm-hmm. and and I mean, from from just watching Ken from the outside over 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 the years and and just sort of you know in the in the pitches that I get and looking at the sessions and whatnot, I think measurement and effectiveness and efficiency and all these sorts of things that that any you know shrewd business is very focused on, I think the same applies to you know the festival about creativity as well. I don't want to I don't think anyone wants to wants to drain the magic out of it, but mm. I do think, particularly when you consider some of the big name, you know, CMOS and companies that are that are going to be there, they of course appreciate creativity and you know outside the box thinking and all that kind of stuff. But I do think that um, measurement and effectiveness, and in this in these times when when things seem to be changing, you know, but. Banner ads aren't as effective, I think, as as people once thought they were. And what does it mean to you know get your message out in you know three second YouTube videos? Um, I think that 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 all of that is is front and center as much as the brilliant minds at work in in these award winning campaigns. And so um, mm. yeah. And with that in mind, I mean, are you seeing? A different attitude from companies towards how they spend on advertising and indeed creativity, which is of course notoriously hard to measure. Mm. I mean, we've seen some companies, for example, bringing their advertising in-house. Are you are you seeing them rethink um, creativity as a budget item? I mean, it, it it would definitely seem that way. I could this this may sound self-serving, but I think. Quartz itself is a is a reflection of that. You know, we're not that old a company. We don't um, conform to the traditional uh, ad units, uh, and uh, it's all bespoke. It's all very uh, creative and 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 fancy, but it's but it's also very effective. You know, in our fourth year of existence, we turned a profit, and you know, I. I mm-hmm. like to think that our that our um, you know the quant the quality of our editorial is 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 a factor in that but i but i also uh know and, and acknowledge and i'm very admiring of my of my colleagues on the marketing uh and advertising side and i think that we've been able to you know attract the same big companies and and agencies who put who you know run programmatic elsewhere and do the traditional things but um have found a new way to do it on places like 
quartz. And, and, and so I do think that you can, um, you know, be effective and creative and efficient mm-hmm. at the same at the same time. And that's really the kind of exciting challenge now. Mm. Well, that's good news for uh, for journalists everywhere that you guys are are already profitable. I'd say so. Indeed. So I, I, I would be remiss uh, on that note if I didn't ask you um, about last week's dramatic uh, election events in the UK. You, you I think, wrote a story saying um, the UK election shows voters now value change above all else. Um, so what does that mean? Yeah, sure. Well, it's it's a it's a you know as the past year we're coming up to the one year anniversary of the Brexit vote, and I think you could um, maybe put a marker there as 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 that's when this we we stepped into this kind of new, um, really volatile political um, time with Brexit with Trump, um, with this general election in the UK. It seems to me just sort of trying to think of the of the overarching narrative here is that is that change is is what's constant that is there was the vote for brexit and then it seems like uh theresa may and her conservatives by doubling down on you know quite harsh brexit rhetoric would have won a big majority but the voters rejected that pretty comprehensively left with the hung parliament here it's a little bit confusing how that works the um uh, the protest vote, so to speak, in Scotland was to vote for the Conservatives and against the SNP. So there's kind of very different uh, dynamics there. And of course, they voted against uh, both Brexit and leaving the UK in recent uh, referendums. And so that's kind of a countervailing trend in the same country. And then you have people like Emmanuel Macron in France, who in many ways is a radical centrist, mm. who there, which is 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 the major vote for change, and he uh, seems to be on course to win a huge majority in the parliament there, as well as the presidency, with his message and his brand new party. Um, and so, it just seems to me we're we're veering between extremes uh, in in political terms, and anything that smacks of the status quo, anything that seems like it's the establishment, even if it's only established for. A few months, uh, voters uh, punish it quite severely. Mm. And why do you think there is this appetite for change? I mean, there's 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 a number of factors you can point to, economic factors, and even mm. in economies like the U.S. and the U.K., where unemployment is low, growth is you know decent enough. You look at things like wage growth, which is which is extremely low. Um, productivity is is incredibly sluggish. You see, you know, the middle class is being kind of hollowed out to a certain degree. There's just kind of stagnation in certain um, parts of society. And I think some of that is, you know, and that and that lends itself to sort of anger when it comes to the ballot box. But it's hard to just put it down to economics because, for example, in this last general election, you had, um, you know, Scottish mining and energy towns voting for the conservatives for the tories and you had uh very rich west london boroughs voting for labor Mm. and if you want to come up with some kind of overarching narrative and and theory that fits those two things together it's it's pretty tough to 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 find one thing that explains that so it's some politics it's some sort of identity issues there's always kind of immigration in the background there and and just kind of a general um break with tradition which you've definitely seen in places uh on the continent like like france and the netherlands where you have brand new parties very quickly and rapidly filling gaps that seem obvious in retrospect but which the old um traditional party systems just never acknowledged mm. And, and in fact, you wrote, in, seen in this light, Donald Trump is a political genius. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's not often you see the word genius and Donald Trump in the same yeah, sentence. Yeah. So Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think, I mean, what's interesting about Trump, you know, clearly he's, he himself is a, a Republican president, but I don't think you can, considering the history of the Repu- Republican Party and what, and what, we think it has come to stand for. He doesn't seem obviously like a traditional uh, 
Republican. And I think on the Democratic side in the U.S. too, you have people like Bernie Sanders and there's and there's a real kind of existential debate happening there about about what they stand for. And so what I what I meant by saying that about Trump is that, you know, he was elected as this iconoclast. He's of the Republican Party, but he's not, you know, he, he doesn't really follow a lot of the traditions that you would associate with them. And now once he's in office, the way that he governs, the decisions that he makes, the convictions that he holds, of which there seem to be few, that he veers wildly, you know, himself and his administration between positions and, and, and sort of openly embraces contradictions versus the campaign versus when he's in power. And in many ways, that reflects the public mood that we were just talking about, sort of veering from one extreme to the other and, and valuing change above all else. He himself changes his opinions, it seems, um, pretty pretty rapidly and, and, and without much remorse. And that, in a way, is shrewd. Mm. If it's intentional. Mm. But as you say, not necessarily a recipe for good government. Well, it's, it seems like there's not a lot getting done in the U.S. Uh, today. And, uh, you know, time will tell if this theory holds about change. You know, there are midterm elections in 2018. Uh, the party in power usually loses seats. And I think the nature of those potential losses or uh, perhaps not. I mean, now now you can you can think yourself into like these circular logic where if we expect change, then um, <laughs> you know one way to change things is, is that there won't be change, and it gets very meta. So it's <laughs> you know um, just ask pollsters these days. It's extremely dangerous to be confident in your convictions when it comes to politics now, and so it's in a way smartest to say that. If anything seems clear and the status quo seems to be, you know, solid, then that's a time to be to be nervous, as Theresa May just learned. Mm -hmm. Jason, thank you so much for your time. We will be um, following your coverage from Cannes next week. Um, have fun. I, I, I may see you there. Uh, and thank you again for taking part today. Indeed. Thanks very much. And if I could just get one one last plug in for the Cannes Daily Brief, it's uh, free and easy to sign up. It's just qz.com slash can dash brief. Mm -hmm. And I have, in fact, signed up. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. We're joined now by Dean Russell, who's a longtime friend of the Homes Report, um, runs his own consulting business uh, called Epiphany. Um, but perhaps more relevantly, uh, given recent UK history, uh, was a Conservative candidate for Parliament in the constituency of Luton South. Dean, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Hi, glad to be part of it. Thank you. I think this is your first time It is on the show. Okay, cool. So you ran for Parliament in the uh, just concluded general election campaign. It was, of course, the second time, I think, that you've run for Parliament. In, yeah, that's uh, right. Second time in two years. Um, and I, w I was going to say, unfortunately, you lost, but I'm, I'm actually quite happy you lost, despite the fact that, you know, I, I can imagine <laughs> it's not much fun for you. It means that the PR industry hasn't lost you to the world of politics. <laughs> and also as a Labour voter, I was happy we held Luton South. Um, but how much of a surprise was the result to you? Because, you know, the polls had... Uh, Theresa May winning a landslide and there was lots of talk that this was why she'd called the election uh, and I think you even yourself you thought it was going to be quite close in Luton South but it was in the end. Well I think it's you know what it was a real shock in the sense that what was being said on the doorstep didn't turn out to be what the result was um, locally or nationally um, mm -hmm. and I think that for me was a real um, I wasn't you know I come out of it feeling like it and knowing that I ran a good campaign and a, a very uh, strong campaign. Um, but what was really interesting was that when I was knocking on so many doors, especially in the first couple of weeks of the campaign, I was knocking so many doors where I'd meet Labour voters saying to me, long-time Labour voters saying to me that they just um, could not vote for Labour this time round. And they couldn't bring themselves to say that they would back the Conservatives, but they were saying, I'll back Theresa May. And so after hearing that, so often on so many doorsteps and at different events, I mean, people who were lifelong Labour who were annoyed 
that um, Corbyn was the leader. Mm. Um, so having heard that so many times, you sort of you try not to drink the Kool-Aid, as it were, and believe, oh, yeah, definitely going to win. But you then come out the other end when the result, you know, wasn't as close as I expected it to be in Luton South, thinking, well, what actually happened there? Did people on the on the day just switch their views um, or was it the campaign? Um, and so I think there was a big national swing that I just couldn't have anticipated. Um, but I also think what um, Labour did was really get out the youth vote. Mm. And I think when you look, look at a lot of the... Um, the towns which have got universities or big universities there, they didn't just get them out to vote. They got them out to go out on the streets and knock on doors and deliver leaflets. And I think, if anything, you know, ultimately we can't forget that Labour lost nationally. Mm -hmm. But what we can remember is that, you know, they were way far behind in the polls originally. Mm. And I think what they did was actually get students out to knock on doors, young people to get enthused about politics and, um, and really be active. Mm-hmm. And that was quite unusual, you know, especially compared to the election just two years ago. Yeah, or indeed even the referendum last yeah. year. How yeah. big a role with that in mind do you think um, social media played? Because obviously um, I, I'm expecting many social media experts to uh, pop up on the conference circuit now, taking credit for Labour's election showing. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think the... I think social media played a strong part. Um, my worry with it was that when we look at social media in terms of what it was saying, and I think this goes across all of the parties, I think there's a worry that I think social media was used in a quite a negative way. It got people out, but it got them out often with a message of, of um, uh, fear of, of what the world is. Mm. And I think there's an opportunity to switch that and especially for the industry, the PR industry and all the professionals who might not even be into politics, you know, but are, are interested in the world around them to start to use that passion to talk about what the future should be in a positive future. I think we're, the, this, the way social media was used this time, there was a lot of negativity. And I, I you know, I totally, totally put my hands up on this as well in terms of some of the campaign um, things I did on my my uh, Facebook page talking mm-hmm. about um about Labour and about Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. But I've come out of the campaign thinking, you know what? I wish, looking back, irrelevant of the result, that there'd been much more of a positivity about the world around us, positivity about what we should be um, as both a nation and as a world. And actually, I think there needs to be a turning point now in all the politics that we do. We've seen Brexit, we've seen Trump, we've seen uh, this election. And often it isn't a case of where the world should be and leadership on, you know, where where should we be in 10, 20 years time? It's often about, you know, shouting and complaining about what we're doing now. And so it's us versus them. And I think Mm. in all all camps of this uh, politically, it's always us versus them. And for me, there's a worry there that if we stir this up and keep stirring up, there's a whole generation of young people who all they're seeing is is negativity in the real world. And the only place that they're getting any solace or um, happiness from is through, um, you know, entertainment and through, um, uh, through uh, you know, uh, comedy and so on on mm-hmm. social media. And I, I'd quite like to yeah. change that. But I do. I mean, I, I've come out of it feeling quite um, energised by the fact that we need to change the narrative. We need, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this is for everything... You know, if you look at the way that we promote products, mm-hmm. we tend not to promote products and services based on how badly the other services and products are. Absolutely, <laughs> but, yeah. But, but the yeah. political world, we've fallen into this thing of we're better because we're not them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I'd like to change that. And I think if I were to run my campaign again, I would very much shift that and I would change it much more towards, you know, what world do we want to be in mm-hmm. and try and get people to rail be behind that uh, rather than it being about what what the world is now isn't it awful it's everyone else's fault it's interesting because we always talk about what brands can learn from political communication because uh, we often see lessons in terms of digital targeting and the use of data being used in in political communication first and yet it almost sounds like maybe um, politicians could learn something from brand communication Oh, totally, totally. I think there's a, 
like I say, you have got to have something to believe in. Mm. And I think there's a, a lesson with this that I think on all campaign fronts, I don't think anyone really came out as a major winner out of this. You mm. know, everyone's been, uh, you know, impacted by it in some way. And I think politics as a whole has been. And I think what's come out of that is this uh, this constant need to pull everything around us down and say why everything else is awful and, you know, how we're the only hope to solve that awful situation we're in, rather than saying, actually, you know what, there's a load of really good stuff going on around us. Let's build that up. And I think what brands do very well is that they really focus in on what is it that, um, that our brand or our product or service does that makes a difference? What is it that adds value to mm. your life? And what's that value going to turn into? And what's the output of that? And I think there's a lesson for that all around. I think people are just fed up, not just of elections and referendums and um, and politics, but I do think there's a, a, a sort of a, a need for people to start to believe in something. Mm. And I think what brands do very well, you know, you look at Coca-Cola at Christmas, you know, and happiness, and you look at um, in the UK and Cadbury's and, you know, the sense of joy and the, the drumming gorilla and all those things, you know, something that adds a bit of pleasure back into the world. And I think the more we go down this route of this sort of propaganda of negativity, it's it's going to have a wider impact because it's on the news all the time. You know, I, I watch the news uh, avidly, but it's almost this an entertainment of fear. You know, mm. the news is all about what's awful that's going on in the world today and just be glad that you're not part of it. You know, and that's mm. not right. And I think there's an opportunity now. Let's have a shift change. Let's, especially as a, an industry, to say, well, what is it that we've taught people um, to feel good about when we're talking about products and services and widgets and whatever? Can we start applying that to the world around us? Can we start to get people actually appreciating every day what is good in the world? You know, waking up and having a, you know, a sense of, you know what, today's going to be a good day and I'll change my mindset to enable that to happen. And I think there's, a, there's an opportunity, a positive opportunity out of all of these elections and all of this negativity to say, look, let's not do that anymore. Let's start to have a vision of where the world should be. And, and for me, I'm, I'm feeling really enthused about that, the idea that perhaps we could start to inject sort of the propaganda of pos positivity uh, back and, um, and get people to come together rather than constantly splitting them apart and dividing everybody based on political views or whatever, because 90% of what people want is pretty much the same. You know, I, I, it didn't matter whether I went to a mosque, whether I went to a church. It didn't matter if I went to a, uh, knocked on someone's door in a, you know, in a state where they've got um, uh, uh, antisocial behaviour or whether I went to an area where, um, you know, it's affluent. Most people want their kids to grow up and be better off than they were or in a better place. They want to feel safe. They want to feel that um, the world's um, uh, in a better state than when they grew up. It's all about those sorts of things of what we want as in ourselves. But I don't feel that that's coming across. It's about, you know, that generation ruined our lives or this generation's going to ruin our pensions. You know, <laughs> And that can't be right. That cannot mm. be right. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it does feel like a very divided country at the moment. Um, yeah. And I think that positivity would be welcome. Um, how big a factor do you think Brexit played in the election certainly as you saw it on the campaign i think it played a big part early on mm. um i think uh, i remember writing an article for the home report um just after i think it was after trump's win mm -hmm. and some of the points i was making there was that the reason why i felt the polls were wrong was because it was being measured and on um on a skew of data which wasn't true anymore mm. in the sense that it, the, the the polls were based on Republicans versus Democrats. But actually, it wasn't as simple as that. In the post-Brexit era, it was much, it was a different dynamic. It wasn't, people who supported Hillary weren't just Democrats, and people who supported Trump weren't just Republicans. You know, there was a different dynamic. And I think it was the same this time around. I think the hope was that there were a lot of um, leavers who were Labour supporters that would come over, and mm. a lot of UKIPers, um, and UKIP supporters who were, leavers who would come over um, to the Conservatives and vice versa. I think um, Labour was saying, well, actually, there were a lot of remaining Remainer Tories 
um, wanted to come over to them and, and the Lib Dems sort of got caught in the middle somewhere. And I think actually that that's where things went slightly wrong, that we started to look at it in a black and white view, in a, again, a, an us and them view, where actually there were a lot of softer issues that were at play. And I think actually, again, one of the things that's come out of this election for me is that I think it's perhaps the, the death knell of, of that time where you could say it's a single purpose or single issue election mm. i think there were a lot more issues than brexit in this yeah i think there was a lot more than just the manifesto and a lot more than just the leader as well um yeah. and i think that potentially is what played into the the youth vote i don't think the mm. youth vote just came out because of brexit mm. i think the youth vote came out of um this need to feel that actually this is beyond watching what's on the screen in social media mm -hmm. i want to get out and put letters through doors and knock on doors because I want to have a voice. Mm. And uh, and I think that's the thing for me with this, that I think what happened during Brexit and during the Trump campaign was that there was a lot of, a, there was a silent majority. There was a lot of people out there who weren't vocal in polls, they weren't vocal on social media. And so it was a shock result because all of a sudden all these silent people went into a, a booth and put a cross in a box against something that they'd never spoken publicly about. I think with this campaign, everything was sh shaken up. It wasn't about the silent majority. It was about a lot of vocal or quiet, small groups, you know, not just the youth vote and the youth group as a massive thing, but they all, all had their different views and areas they were interested in. Similarly for the Conservatives, it wasn't just a, an assumption that all Conservatives were um, Brexiteers, because they weren't and vice mm -hmm. versa for Labour. And, and so I think this was a much more fragmented and nuanced um, electorate than ever before. And I genuinely think having, as I say, knocked on many doors, probably thousands of doors and spoken at so many different events, that I think those nuances meant that when people went into the um, the ballot box and, and to put their vote down, I think there will have been people who were still hovering over two boxes of where to put their X. Because mm. I, I don't think it, there was that much surety around what they were going to vote for and who they were going to vote for. Yeah, no, I mean, the number of people I spoke to who said that they hadn't made a decision um, a day before Election Day was quite telling. And, you know, yeah. I think a, a big difference from from previous elections. I wonder if that tr that tribal loyalty to your party is breaking down and we're seeing this, these kinds of coalitions around around values, perhaps, which is something actually we've seen in the US and has actually resulted in a, in a very divided electorate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's a, another angle there as well that I don't think any party can take their um, voters for granted anymore. Mm. Um, we can't just assume that they all think the same. And I think with this, and I think it's the same for Labour as well, I really do, because, you know, I, had, I remember a, a, a one night I was out canvassing, it was about half nine, and this guy came up to me and I had my blue rosette on and I was with one of my um, supporters and we were out. So it's just finished knocking doors because it got a bit late. And this guy came up to me, absolutely drunk, you know, brilliant guy, really lovely guy. Um, and he came up to me and he said, oh, I've voted Labour my whole life. You know, I've, I'm a long time Labour voter. And I was wait, I was just waiting for the punchline of him saying, and I'll never vote for you. But mm -hmm. he didn't. He came mm -hmm. out with the punchline of, of and I'll I hate to say it, but I'm going to be voting for you this time round. Mm. And he gave me the long reason of, of why. We were there. I was chatting to him for about 20 minutes on the street. Mm. And um, and that's the thing that was different with this campaign. The may, that may well have been on the other side as well for other parties, yeah. um, including my own. And but then he sobered really, up. <laughs> but no, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just think it was really fascinating because there was a real anger there, frustration, mm. that the party that he'd always supported you know, um, no longer represented what he wanted, even though he was a socialist. You know, mm. that was the odd thing that, you know, what was the phrase that someone said early on in the process? They said, you know, don't forget, it isn't that you've left Labour, Labour have left you. Mm. But I think there's a, I think there was that across all parties. And I think there was a real mismatch of, you know, what what are we voting for, not just who are we voting for? Mm. And I think, think the lesson for brands with that is that we live in an age where, I think loyalty is no longer a given. You know, brand loyalty we've talked about for a long time in the industry is no longer a given. You know, mm -hmm. you can't assume that someone who's bought Coca-Cola their whole life will never try Pepsi, you know. And um, 
And I think that's beginning to perhaps seep through to politics, which is actually what what's the best deal I'm going to get here? You know, forget what I voted my whole life. What is it that I want to get out of this? And I think that's going to be something we've got to really tackle um, uh, politically, but also um, as a society. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more um, self-thought and a lot more information out there as well around what are our representatives saying and what are they going to actually do. Mm. And and again, I think there's got to be a positive agenda around that. We've got to not tear each other down. Because my, my worry is that if we go down this route of just tearing each other apart, what are you left with? Mm. Everyone is damaged and, um, and no one trusts anyone. And I think elections this past few years have just shown that trust in politics, trust in society, trust in pu- public bodies is probably it's all time low. And so people are voting in, yeah, they're not voting for things that they want to happen. They're voting uh, for things that they don't want to happen. (laughs) You know, they're voting against things, not voting for things. Yeah, I mean, a lot, I mean, you talk about the the expected uh, shift from Labour to Conservative, which which wasn't completely borne out, I guess, by the results. Mm. And I mean, a lot has been made of the the the, the Tory campaign run by um, Theresa May, mm-hmm. uh, at least, and, and notwithstanding the fact that perhaps it doesn't affect uh, the candidates as much as we like to think it does. Um, what do you think the lessons are from that? I mean, Paul Holmes on our website has written a pretty damning indictment of her of her campaign. You know, the strong and stable mantra, which. Um, appeared to be undermined at, 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 at every step um, and the, the, I guess the lack of consultation, the, the sort of um, quite a, a, a centrist approach to, to, to the campaign, certainly from, from her team. I wonder what you think that the communications lessons there are. I think there's, there's three mm. in my mind. The first one is very old cliche, but don't put all your eggs in one basket, <laughs> you know, especially in politics you know we we i think we ran the campaign a bit too much like a presidential campaign mm. and that put a lot of weight and a lot of pressure on theresa may not to do anything wrong and that the challenge then is that everyone then was looking and labor in particular mm. um were then ultimately scrutinizing every single move or lack of move or mm-hmm. uh, attendance at a debate or not attendance at a debate. So all it did was, I think, in part, open up the opportunity for criticism on an individual instead yeah. of on the party. Yeah. Um, I think the second thing was naturally, and I think any conservative involved in the campaign would agree with me, um, that the manifesto just wasn't positioned right. Um, I think actually a lot of what was in the manifesto was to try and get Labour supporters over to us. Mm. Very ironically, you know, things like the winter fuel, you know, uh, making it so that people who had lots of money didn't get it because there was, you know, it wouldn't make doesn't make sense. So I think there was a lot of things in there that were actually to try and appeal to Labour voters. And actually, what we should have done, in my mind, is just in a very bland, normal, you know, continue mm. <laughs> continue on as we are sort of manifesto, um, because then there wouldn't have been anything to pick apart. But instead, it was um, the the things that people could misinterpret in in some instances meant that on the doorstep, instead of saying, you know, uh, what it was for me, for example, knocking on doors in Luton South, instead of me going out there saying, look, in Luton South, there were a lot of issues and there were a lot of issues and still are Mm. um, that I was trying to rail rail against. I mean, really, really bad issues um, that I was trying to fight for and really help people on. It instantly then became about one or two lines in the manifesto mm. and the, the press understandably and the other parties naturally jumped on that and mm-hmm. started to um to make it almost each two every two three days a single issue around one of those lines in the manifesto and so it's very hard then to come back and have a, a rational discussion with people around what's going on around them if they feel that they're being targeted because they're a certain age or a certain you know um, a, a certain level of wealth or whatever it might be. And so I think there's a lesson there for brands, which is, you know, on that second point, which is around actually understanding or making sure that the message you put out there is really understood by the people who are then selling it. Um, so for me, effectively, I was on the doorstep 
selling the party and selling myself within that. Uh, but the, the tools and the marketing materials in the background weren't um, checked and verified and assured uh, before I went out then talking to people. Mm. And that, that was a real shame. I think that was a mystery. And I think the third thing as well was the um, was the fact that we, I think, we dismissed the youth piece a little mm. bit too much. I think yeah. there was um, a misunderstanding. Not, And I don't even mean that in terms of voters. I just mean in terms of the ability um, to get people out on the street and knock on doors. And, and part of the reason for that, in my mind, was the timing of the election. We timed the date of the election to be when universities or university students were just about to do their exams. So they had a lot of spare time outside of revision. Um, mm. There'd just been council elections across a lot of the UK. So a lot of traditional activists and councillors were now probably quite tired from all parties. I think this is fair to say, but, you know, a lot of people who would normally be out knocking on doors had just done six weeks of it, or probably yeah. um, six six months knowing yeah. that that was coming up. So all point. of a sudden, yes, yeah, so you've all of a sudden got uh, a tired base of activists compared to a bunch of younger activists who've got the energy. Oh, yeah. Got the, got the yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Got the en- yeah, yeah, totally. They've got the energy, the drive and the time. So all of a sudden they're out, you know, post elect, uh, post exams, go, oh, let's go out and do something. And they turned it into a bit of fun. I mean, the, the, one of the pieces for my campaign, which um, we did a bit of a piece about, was my the guy I was running against bought Ross Kemp um, to Luton to mm. uh, rail the troops. And I, I did a, 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 sort of a, a sort of a bit of tongue-in-cheek piece on Facebook, which was like, you know, by Corbyn's candidate brings um, Ross Kemp. And for me, I'd bought ministers and secretaries of state and MPs who were making the decisions. Mm. But clearly, actually, you know what? That probably got an extra hundred people out knocking on doors, you know, so... You know, wow, it's a, I had no idea a, Ross Kemp was such a big draw, but anyway. I know, that's the thing, that's what made me laugh, because I, <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, I think the bit for me that's the most difficult part of not winning an election isn't not being an MP, so of yeah. course I'd like to be an MP, but it's the fact that you do meet people who are in real dire situations, and I, I can't overplay this, you know, politics and campaigns and all that, yeah, it's all well and good, but actually it's about people. And the people who contacted me who really were in need, who really needed support, who weren't being given a voice by either their local MP or the council, um, that were coming to me saying, like, we're just not being listened to. And the problem is, uh, during an election, you can shine a light on that. Mm. But then afterwards, they get forgotten. And I've, I've already said to them that I'm going to carry on fighting their cause. I'm still going to, just today, I've been on calls with people who contacted me and I said, look, I'm not going to win an election here anytime soon because um, it most likely won't be one. But don't worry, I'm going to be on your side. I can still give you a voice. And the reason why I say that is that I think the trouble with politics sometimes is it does become about this bigger picture. Uh-huh. But there's people on the ground, you know, people who are having really big, serious issues and they they can get lost in the mix. And I think if anything, you know, I come out of this this campaign with my head held high because I know that the people who needed help, I helped, even though I didn't use them necessarily in my campaign. Uh But people who came up to me and said, look, that they needed support, they needed someone to contact, you know, the chief executive council or whatever. And I did it. And that's because that's the sort of MP I'd want to be. But similarly, I think from a campaign perspective, they get lost. And so they just, their voices get muted. And if there's anything actually that's really come out for me, with this campaign and in particular in terms of what the, what my positioning was my positioning was all around this concept that you know that i would be your voice you know as a constituent i'd be your voice and raise it up and something that's really hit me afterwards is that i've realized i don't need to be an mp to mm. help someone build their voice i don't need to have a title nobody does absolutely nobody needs to be you know to be in a position to help other people and I, I, I sort of feel now that there's an opportunity for me and for so many others, especially in the PR and comms industry, to stop being focused on titles or on roles or money or any of those things. Let's start looking at our neighbours and look at people who need help. You know, there's no reason why um, anyone who's listening to this now can't go to areas where you know people need support and write to their local press 
you know, and help them, you know, raise their profile or write to their local council or write to whoever um, and use social media or digital to make sure that they're not forgotten. Because there's a lot of people out there who don't know how to use digital. They don't know how to use social media. They're stuck in their own world and they're not able to pull together the resources to help them get out of it because they don't know what to do. And I think the responsibility I take on now, and, and I, I'm sure many others, and I hope anyone listening does, is let's start you know, giving people a voice. People, Not just people who are trolling and being angry and putting their energy to bringing everyone down. Let's use our voices to you know, create positivity. Let's use our voices to help people take action and do it and not be needing an election or a, you know, a, a referendum to do it, we, if we just did it to two or three of our neighbours, imagine what world we'd be living in then, how positive everything would be. So I don't want to sound too cliched or cheesy, but I really realised that, you know what, even though I didn't win an election, it doesn't stop me or anyone else from actually going out there and doing some good in this world. And I think that's what we need. We need more action, positive action, rather than, um, you know, sitting in armchairs, uh, criticising everything. Mm, well said. Um, so just quickly before I let you go, uh, you said you didn't think there's going to be another election. Obviously, there's a lot of talk. It's a it's a fluid situation, as they say, because uh, the Conservative Party, uh, on its own at least, does not uh, command a parliamentary majority. Um, how do you see how do you see it all playing out? I you know what? I, I, if you asked me a few days ago, I'd have said there'd probably be a um, uh, another election soonish. At the moment, I genuinely don't know. And I don't think anyone does. Um, oh. I think if there is another one, it won't be for a few months. My worry is that um, I think people are a bit fed up with elections. They're a bit fed up of referendums. They're a bit oh. fed up of all of this. And it's quite a costly exercise. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not, not cheap for the country by any means. Um, so part of me thinks even however it plays out, I personally think it would be quite good to have a year of you know year or six months at least to start to you know calm down look at what people are wanting but do it an active listening exercise um i think one thing that going back to the points of why it turned out the way it did perhaps more so in my area than than nationally but for me i think what happened was that for the during an election what happens is you spend months if not years usually because you know when it's going to happen broadly speaking um, knocking on doors and doing canvassing. And when you knock on doors and do canvassing, you ask people, you know, which way do you think you might be voting? You know, what are your big issues? Blah, blah, blah. And then you then start to pull that together because there, there was a big data element to this as well, which I haven't really covered. But, you know, you pull that together and you get a sense of which ways thing, things might go. But because it was the snap election and the other election was only two years ago, but we'd had a, a Brexit happen in between, mm. what ended up happening was that there were a lot of assumptions that the data that was there in 2015 was still correct. Right. And I think people had switched their allegiances from parties because of Brexit, um, mm. both for and against. The data, therefore, wasn't 100% correct. And so we were going out there listening for the first two or three weeks of the, the month or six weeks of the election, listening, um, but asking questions that were related to our previous assumptions. And I think now all parties and society generally needs to go out and start listening. Actually, what are the issues? What are people worried about? Not just Brexit, but, you know, within their local communities, what are they really thinking about? What really influences them? Just like any marketeer would do as a natural part of their day and day. You know, they, they go out and listen to their customers and find out what, what do they want? You know, not just what do they want, what do they need? And then build their brand campaign around that. And I think there's a, a need now for, uh, and I think so for the Conservatives, is to start to do an active listening exercise, to go back out, almost pretend the, the election didn't happen, and mm -hmm. go out and start campaigning and canvassing and saying, look, why did you change your view? Why did yeah. you change your vote? Or, alternatively, why did you vote for us? You know, mm -hmm. we, we still won a, you know, a stomping um, number of seats mm -hmm. um, compared to Labour, but that doesn't mean that we, we haven't got a lot to learn, as, as anyone does at these things. Even if we'd won, you know, a 650-seat majority, obviously it never happened, but even if we'd done that, you should still go out and carry on listening and asking why why were we successful or why did we fail? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the bit now that before anything else is called as an election, 
um, or any next step, I think we need to all get back to basics and go, well, actually, what was this really about? Was it about Brexit? Was it about the NHS? Was it about, um, you know, the last election? What was it that really was driving people? And again, start to all parties start to have a very positive view forward to say, let's work together to build a better society rather than let's tear down each other and say, you know, well, you're going to do this and that's going to ruin everything and you're going to do this and that's going to ruin everything. Let's say, well, actually, is there a common ground that we can all work to? And I know that's a bit idealistic because that's not the way politics works and so on. But I think there's there's an opportunity here to start to reassess and, um, like I say, be more positive in terms of where we want to be, not just in the UK, but globally, and start to use this sort of what I call this sort of propaganda of positivity to to get people to start to buy into something better. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think and I think a little humility would would go a long way. Yeah, um, yeah. Dean, thank you so much for your time. I do hope you don't have to run for Parliament again <laughs> <laughs> too soon, because <laughs> I suspect it takes quite a lot out of you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But thanks uh, for being on the Echo Chamber. We will, uh, I'm sure, have you on again soon. Um, Thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back again next week when, in fact, we'll be uh, producing some shows live from the Cannes Lions uh, Festival. So do look out for those. Uh, You can check out our Cannes schedule uh, on the Homes Report website. Um, And, of course, you can find us on iTunes, on... uh, Podbean on on various podcast providers. If you are listening on iTunes, please do um, rate and review us. It would be uh, much appreciated. Thank you all. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.